Hello and welcome to The Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco 24. This week, we'll hear from the ground in Kiev. It's like living in a nightmare, in an Orwellian nightmare. It's surreal. It's madness. It's crazy. It's like, you know, I feel that myself and my colleagues, we are so pumped full of adrenaline that we don't even realize or are not even fully aware of what we are going through and what's going on around us. Plus, we celebrate 15 years of Monaco. There are many magazines that do go through enormous transformation and sometimes you don't really you know, recognize them from one decade to the next. And I think here we set out, I would say, a pretty strict architecture in terms of the sections that we want to look at. I think the approach to photography and everything that went with it. And, and I guess, you know, when I say everything that went with it, a big core part of that when you think about consistency is also the people. All that and much more in the next hour on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. This week here at Monaco 24, our team unpacked the latest news from Ukraine after the country has been invaded by Russian forces. On Thursday's Globalist, we heard this report from Ukrainian journalist and academic Olga Tokaryuk. I'm in a safe place, but unfortunately this morning is not good to us in Ukraine. Uh, 17 Ukrainian regions so far, according to the latest information, have been affected by this new Russian invasion, uh, a full-scale Russian invasion. Russia has been launching airstrikes on Ukrainian military facilities in various regions, attacking airfields, attacking airports, uh, striking and destroying Ukrainian uh, infrastructure, um, bridges in uh, uh, in eastern Ukraine, in Krivoyri, in Dnipropetrov, region, but also in Donetsk region. So uh, this is not a good morning here in Ukraine, and it is not a good morning for anyone in Europe and in the world who cares about peace and stability and, and democracy. How did you find out what was happening? Well, I found out from the news, uh, like the first thing I checked in the morning, of course, uh, I checked the news and I saw immediately like a barrage of messages uh, announcing Russian strikes from various directions. The fact that Russian land uh, uh, troops uh, and uh, military equipment, ground equipment crossed the Ukrainian border also from the territory of neighboring Belarus. So what is happening now is not just an invasion by Russia. It's also an invasion enabled by Belarusian regime. And the world must act now to stop horrific consequences that we might face in the next hours, not just days. Tell us a little bit about what people are doing. Uh, there were f- pictures all over the press yesterday of children being placed into uh, air raid shelters in Kiev as a, and, and in eastern Ukraine as, a, as an exercise. Are people actually moving and acting upon it or are you still all just analysing or just in, looking at what is happening to your own country? Well, no, there is, of course, a reaction of the people in Kiev. At least two air uh, uh, signals, air s- sirens went off and people were ordered to go to shelters. And some people actually went to shelters. Uh, schools are closed almost all over the country. Parents were told to uh, keep their children uh, at home today. And uh, uh, also in a location where, where I'm in, uh, it has not been affected by the Russian strikes yet. And hopefully it won't be. Uh, but the, there is, I've seen already in the morning, uh, 
queues at the ATMs and also queues at the petrol stations. And there are images and there are videos of people trying to get out of Kyiv in the western, uh, towards the, the western uh, Ukraine. And the roads there are, are full of traffic with a lot of cars stuck. So people are already trying to leave Ukraine? Well, they are trying at least to move to safer locations in Ukraine. Uh, it looks like it would be impossible to leave Ukraine on air because the airports have been targeted and the airspace has been closed. Uh, so the only options are uh, to leave on the land border and we will see what's going to happen there in the next hours. Just explain to us how prepared you were for this to happen. We have been watching from the outside of Ukraine for many months as this build-up of troops has been made by the Russians on on the border. Um, but was there any sense that this would actually happen? Well, I think uh, even people who didn't believe it might happen, this full-scale invasion, uh, changed their mind after Putin's address uh, several days ago when he recognized the so-called self-proclaimed republics of Donetsk and Luhansk and basically said that Ukraine doesn't have a right to exist as an independent state. So many people who thought uh, a new invasion was unlikely changed their mind and actually believed that it is quite likely. Uh, So uh, this is not a complete surprise, of course, but still, you know, it is shocking because, uh, uh, well, uh, most of people... People in, in Ukraine have not been affected by war. Yeah, the war has been going on since 2014, but it was limited to a, a strip of land in parts of uh, eastern Ukraine and parts of Donetsk and Luhansk regions. And people uh, throughout all the other territory of Ukraine, which is a huge country, actually, it's, it's a very big country, uh, have not experienced uh, directly what war is. So waking up to the sound of explosions, waking up to the sound of bombing, you know, was something that really uh, shocked many. Let's talk about the reaction from the President Vladimir Zelensky. He says we are working, the army is working without panic. We are strong. We are ready for everything. We will defeat everyone. What do you make of what he says? Well, I think this kind of, he said what is needed to say at this moment, you know, in order to calm the population and to show that Ukrainian armed forces are ready to defend their country. And actually, there are already news that Ukrainian armed forces managed to bring down five Russian aircraft and one Russian helicopter. So there is already like a counter a response, you know, by the Ukrainian armed forces. And this is what is needed to send the signal and to the people and to the soldiers to both inside Ukraine in order like to show them that the country is ready to defend itself, but also to send a signal to the world that Ukrainians are not going to surrender and they are uh, going to resist. And, you know, like I watch TV in the morning. Thankfully, we still have connection, like working, mobile connection, internet connection, TV stations are working. And also the message that the presenters are trying to send to, you know, the population is kind of stay calm, do not panic, follow the news, share only reliable information, do not share... Uh, the uh, videos indicating the location and the movements of Ukrainian troops. So, um, and also the message I think that should be also sent now and that has been sent by especially Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba to the world that the, the world must react now. You know, there are ways to punish Russia. There are ways to stop Russia. There are ways to help Ukraine. And all those uh, measures should be implemented immediately without waiting further because it's already clear, uh, it's 100% clear that Putin has gone full Hitler, you know, he's attacking uh, a sovereign, independent, peaceful country without any reason. And for the first time since the end of World War II, a major power has embarked on the conquest of an European country. Russia has attacked Ukraine by air, land and sea, from several directions. 
In Thursday's special edition of the Monaco Daily, Monaco's Andrew Muller spoke to Lesia Vasilenko, a member of Ukraine's parliament. He began by asking her how she had seen the events this week. That's definitely indescribable. Uh, every time I get this question still, I freeze for a second because literally it's like living in a nightmare, in an Orwellian nightmare that I could never even dare dream in my worst of dreams. It's surreal. It's madness. It's crazy. It's like, you know, I feel that myself and my colleagues, we are so pumped full of adrenaline that we don't even realize or are not even fully aware of what we are going through and what's going on around us. Do you have any understanding at all, or I guess a better way of asking would be, what is your best assessment of what Russia is attempting to do here? That's an easier question. We have reports uh, coming in saying that Russia's end goal is to come into Kiev and circle Kiev and then get parliament to essentially uh, legalize an, uh, a coup uh, and a complete change of power in Ukraine. The end goal would be to actually impose a Moscow Muppet government here in Kiev that would run Ukraine. But before that, to get the, the acting parliament to vote on such laws as recognition of the so-called republics, recognition that Crimea is, is Russian territory, uh, saying that uh, Ukraine will never be part of NATO or the EU, uh, calling back the decision to have an independent Ukrainian church. So all of this is, uh, and the big one is also disarmament of the whole country and and all of the population of Ukraine. Uh, All of this essentially will mean the end of Ukraine as an independent country. What kind of conversations, if any, have you been able to have with your fellow MPs about how you will respond um, if Russia gets anywhere near making that scenario a reality? Well, it is clear that Parliament, uh, this Parliament of the Ninth Convocation of Ukraine, will never support this decision. Uh, we were sitting in Parliament today as of 7 a.m. Some of us got there as early as 6:30 a.m. and we were voting on on the vote uh, on the law. Uh, introducing uh, martial law uh, in Ukraine. And we were discussing all the possibilities and the possibilities are such that uh, we will and we have a duty never to give up Ukraine as an independent state. And so far, we are very um, determined to abide by this duty. I'm not sure how much attention you've been able to pay to the diplomatic comings and goings in the world outside. There have, of course, been a lot of statements from uh, NATO countries, from the EU, from the wider West, uh, you know, offering rhetorical support for Ukraine uh, and offering to enforce sanctions of various sort against Russia. Have any of those responses been um, any amount of encouragement where you are in Ukraine? Oh, sure. So uh, the responses, the political statements, uh, they're extremely important at this point in time. Uh, I can see now that there will be also uh, some concrete action behind these responses already. I'm a member of the PACE delegation and I see that uh, the motion 
to uh, kick Russia out of the pace has gotten over 70 uh, signatures already. And the minimum necessary is 50 and the number is growing by, by the hour, basically. So I think that what we are looking at is that Russia will be ousted for, from some major um, um, organizations. Um, we would need still a more robust stance, not just on political statements mm -hmm. and political decisions, but a more robust stance against Russia in, term, in terms of sanctions that can really hurt the economy of that country and uh, subsequently uh, the military might of that country. And again, we would also need support and incentives for the Ukrainian military right here, right now. And the crucial timing is the next 48 hours. Well, in that 48 hours, what kind of concrete actions can the West take? Because, you know, as you'll be well aware, everybody has been punctilious in ruling out sending actual direct military support to Ukraine. So within that extremely narrow time frame and events are moving quickly, what can actually be usefully done? Uh, still, we are in need of equipment, anti-tank uh, equipment, anti-tank weapons, anti-tank missiles, uh, anti-airstrike uh, missiles. We need those as well. And the list of military demands goes on and on because throughout these eight years, Yes, Ukraine has been getting uh, support and uh, military contributions in forms of various weapons. But most of these weapons, if not all of them, were defensive weapons. And, uh, and the weapons which even had uh, a remote possibility to be used on the offensive ever were never supplied to Ukraine. And now we are short of those. We are short of the key weapons necessary to protect our airspace from airstrikes. And we are short of the uh, machinery and the instruments that can really uh, 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 give severe blows uh, to Russia and its attacks on Ukraine. Realistically speaking, though, even if as much direct military you know, supplies and equipment could be brought into Ukraine as soon as possible, how? what's your read on how capable Ukraine is of defending itself against Russia? Ukraine is obviously a geographically vast country. It does have a very significant military. How defendable do you think it is? Well, uh, look, we've been at war uh, at at open war all over the country for the last 13 and a half hours now with uh, the largest army in Europe, the third largest army in the world and a nuclear power uh, with us not being a nuclear power and having much, much, much uh, smaller army. Well, how do you think? We are still standing 13 and a half uh, hours in and Russia is uh, actually uh, suffering some severe blows and some very deep casualties. You said earlier that the next 48 hours are crucial, and that, that is doubtless the case. And I, I don't want to make this sound like an idle or Pollyanna-ish question, because I realise talking in terms of best-case scenarios right now uh, does seem somewhat footling. But what is your best hope for how things might look by the end of this coming weekend? Uh, there's uh, the answer uh, which I can give to you, uh, which will express my hopes. Uh, but actually, I was hoping that uh, this day I'm witnessing today would never come. So uh, what I will say is that by the end of this weekend, uh, we need to pull all resources, national and international, into Ukraine right here, right now, to make sure that on Monday morning we wake up and that we are still speaking of an independent Ukraine.
You are listening to the curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And now to another update from Kiev. Ukraine has been attempting to repel what it's described as a full-scale invasion by Russia after Moscow's forces breached the border in the north. A little over 24 hours later and Russian airborne troops claim to have seized Antonov military airport close to the Ukrainian capital Kiev, potentially creating an air bridge for troops to enter the heart of the country. On Friday's Globalist, we head straight to Ukraine, where we can hear from Yulia Marushevska, a Ukrainian anti-corruption activist and former civil servant. So the last night I spent in a shelter at the left bank uh, uh, of Kyiv with all my family. Um, and it was awful because the like second half of the night we uh, heard shillings and explosions. And uh, a Russian drone was shut down just like a block away from the shelter, and it fell down to the uh, house with like people living there. So it's a real war that started uh, in Ukraine. It's shocking, and I couldn't believe that that's happening in the heart of Europe. And this has taken what thirty hours for all this to happen? Absolutely. Like even two days ago, we were a peaceful city. That was that, that's actually my first day of war ever. Tell us how people are reacting at the moment. I mean, you are in Kiev, um, the capital, which has this international and very calm feel about it. What are Ukrainians doing? Some are saying that many are trying to flee. We've seen the pictures and others are saying, OK, we're prepared to fight now. So, uh, different. Uh, I would say in general, people are united in terms of defending their city and hoping for the best. Um, uh, so the the last day we were like looking for different shelters and spending on the uh, on the streets, uh, connecting to our friends and families. But of course, a uh, big percentage of uh, families with kids and uh, uh, wider families are leaving. Uh, there are also lots of people who are uh, trying to get the weapons and uh, to become a part of self defense. Uh, so in general. It's super stressful. It's real war situation, uh, but we want to defend ourselves. What kind of information are you getting from, well, anybody really, in terms of what you should be doing and where you can protect yourself? Well, we are getting a lot of information uh, from different channels, from official channels, from starting from the Ministry of Interior, Foreign Affairs, uh, um, Ukrainian army, uh, our volunteers, our veterans, uh, our uh, info, uh, informational uh, groups. So we have like plenty of sources of information, like social media, all the possible like channels, uh, news channels. So uh, the, the problem is not in information. The problem is Russian shilling. Like they, the, like our sky is naked, and uh, we are lucky when like this shilling is stopped from time to time by Ukrainian army. But it's not happening every time. We're hearing uh, from the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky that enemy saboteur groups have entered Kiev and that Russia is planning to assassinate him. Um, the Pentagon has also warned that Kiev is one of the chief targets of um, of the Russian forces. A- an attempt to decapitate the government is the phrase that's being used. Um, do you feel as if Kiev could fall? No, I don't think that Kyiv can fall, but uh, there, is, there is a danger that uh, a lot of people will become a victim of this Russian Putin's craziness. Kyiv will, stand, uh, will stay to the end, but um, it may cost all of us too much. 
Tell us a little bit more about what you know about the, the, the resistance that's being mounted. We have the Russians amassing 190,000 troops, slightly smaller than the entire Ukrainian armed forces. Um, but there are claims that the Russians have a much more sophisticated armament, armament to their disposal. They have better um, forces, in the, they have better skills and, and, and equipment in the air, on the ground. And that there is a fear that the Ukrainian forces could be overwhelmed. What would you say to that? I would agree with the bet that the Russian forces are better armed. Absolutely, they have better weapons. Uh, they had more experience in real wars, but uh, I, but for them, like they are attacking us for nothing, and we are defending ourselves. So our spirit is in a better place. But we desperately would need uh, military support because yes, they they have much better equipment. So tell us, therefore, what you want the rest of the world to do. There has been sanctions issued in the last 24 hours from everywhere in the West and um, troops in neighbouring Latvia, Lithuania and Poland, NATO troops who cannot come in and help you. What is it that Ukraine needs right now? We need severe sanctions on Russia because what happened like yesterday, it was... It didn't stop Russia at all. Unfortunately, these sanctions were weak and slow and nothing is happening. Ukrainians are dying every day. We are losing our country part by part every hour. So we need much more severe sanctions. We need to close our sky. We need to defend our sky. Like uh, we don't ask you to fight instead of us, but we just need some defense from the sky. Yuli, you say you need help from the air, but what else do you need practically right now in Ukraine? Uh, of course, we need uh, military, financial and humanitarian aid. Uh, we need uh, uh, blood stop uh, bags. Uh, we need uh, uh, urgent uh, and extensive sanctions on Russia. We need to block SWIFT immediately. And that's just, that kills me to hear that like Germany is blocking it. That's I couldn't believe that when I hear that this morning. We need to block as much Russian companies, airlines, families, accounts as possible. We need to act during these few days. Otherwise, we will lose Ukraine for many years. That was Yulia Maruszewska there. And keep listening to our coverage throughout all our news shows. And now to a highlight from The Stack, our print media show. And this time we keep things in-house to celebrate 15 years of Monaco. We have a new issue out as well. And on the show this week I've welcomed in studio Monaco's Tyler Brule, Andrew Tuck and Richard Spencer-Powell. Tyler, Andrew, Rich, what a pleasure and what a special edition of The Stack as well. 15 years of Monaco. Tyler, my first impression is, I was looking at issue one like a few days ago, the consistency. I mean, when you look at uh, number 151, of course, there's a few changes here and there, but the consistency is amazing. Yeah, well, and just before we went on air, you were even being more flattering than, than you are now. And it's, um, I think that's always, you know, I guess it's a bit of a, a testament to, to a strong brand. And I think, you know, Rich and Andrew can jump in here. But I think I've always believed that good brands, doesn't matter whether it's an automotive company, whether it's a hotel, a lot of it is about repetition. And I think that there are, are many magazines, uh, many media brands that we see that, that they do go through enormous transformation. And sometimes you don't really, you know, recognize them from, you know, not one issue to the next or one decade to the next. And I think here, you know, we, we set out, I think, with, I would say, a pretty strict 
architecture in terms of the sections that we want to look at. I think the approach to photography, uh, the grid uh, that Rich built up and everything that went with it. And and I guess, you know, when I say everything that went with it, a, a big core part of that when you think about consistency is also the people. And this is kind of remarkable that I'm sitting with uh, someone uh, across me, Richard Spencer Powell, who I've uh, been working with since 1997. Andrew Tuck has uh, well, been on the journey for 15 years, but we've known each other for over 30. So that's also part of this as well. And Andrew, I, w- I want to put you here in this uh, conversation. I mean, it's about the belief in print as well, because when Monaco was launched in 2007, now I'm realizing it was the credit crunch years. I mean, nobody was kind of advising people to launch a new title, right? I mean, but I think that that belief is what makes Monaco in a way, right? Well, we started and then that credit crunch came around the corner a little bit afterwards, but very swiftly. But it made us kind of think about what we stood for and and how we would connect with audiences. And I think it baked into the brand of Monocle some really important things very early on, one of of which was you need to be nimble, another which was you need to be focused on opportunity, and another one maybe that you need to be positive because if we had kind of got all caught up in the woes of that time, we'd have soon vanished as a brand. So oddly, those those have become tenants of the things that we stand for and how we report stories and, and how we deliver things to our readers. And so I think it was a good test, in a way, of Monocle. It, it, it made us feel primed for what was ahead. And, and, and Rich, again, the design of Monocle, that's uh, incredibly remarkable, the kind of slightly bookish kind of characteristics of it as well. And again, tell us about some of the changes you do, because again, Monaco is not a magazine, as I said to Tyler, number one and number 151, they look incredibly consistent. But tell us about your inspiration, actually, for the now iconic design of Monaco. Well, I think the design of Monaco or any magazine of Monaco's type, which, of course, there aren't many, I think it's just about presenting the journalism well, not being capricious and changing your mind, being confident, being consistent and doing lots and lots of small things well as well as you can and to do that for as long as you can and I think we have to be you have to be confident you know the newsstand you make a magazine with a, with a nice front cover and you put it out there to the world and say please come and buy me and you have to be confident with that and I think you have to trust your instincts and of course you can develop a bit and react to things but I think we've just been very good at staying the course and sticking to our sticking to our beliefs and we've managed to do that for 15, 15 years consistently of course there are challenges and of course each issue is different but I think, yeah, as long as you stick to the core values, I think the product uh, is long-lasting. And that was always the intention, to, to design something that wasn't faddish and um, capricious or schizophrenic, that it was confident and, and it knew what it wanted to be. One thing that I'm curious, I would like to ask all of you, what is your favourite Monaco cover? Because, I mean, we all love to see kind of when we go to the first floor, there's all the 150, 51 uh, covers. I, I love looking at it every day. Perhaps I start with you, Rich. I mean, you're you're designing that, right? <laughs> I have been, yeah. Um, difficult to choose one. Um, I did uh, wander past the cover wall on my way down. I think one I really like is the Kumamon Japan special cover. Designing the cover, it's the closest thing I have to sort of writer's block where sometimes it's really difficult to get it out. Yeah, can I just say as well, also the closest that we ever came to a really serious lawsuit uh, <laughs> as well with, with that cover. But we'll, we'll come back to that. <laughs> but it was just, it was a kind of quick eureka moment. I think me and Andrew stood in the corridor and it was like, okay, how about we put it on, you know, one of the mascots, Kuma on the bear, I love him. And then we did the negotiation. I couldn't attend the shoot. It happened in Tokyo. We had literally a 30-minute window, Shin and I, on a call with them at four o'clock in the morning and then they were sending screen grabs through and we were like yeah yeah that's it got it and it just came together really quick i love the cover i love the simplicity i love the play i love that it's japanese it's it's just very us i love the fact it's sold very well 
And I love the fact I went to Tokyo to go to the launch of that magazine, which was just pre-pandemic, and it was a great trip. And yeah, I, th there's lots of nice memories for me on that cover. Andrew? Well, there's a few. The first year, the first quality of life survey we did, because I think that's the one that kind of was a bit of a breakthrough moment connecting with readers and, and commercially nice. In 2010, I got to go to your home nation to Brazil, and we did this very elegant cover, which is a staircase at uh, Itamarachi Palace in, in the foreign ministry. And that's another issue I like. And then there's the same as Rich. There's one or two that are just very simple images. A, a gummy bear for our German issue, which I thought was cool. And also when we've switched, when we've switched design, so I think mm. when we did Defence Dogs, uh, which is a, a strange thing to do at issue 101, and then we've just when we did the redesign mm. last year, I think that we, it, it's, you just see these jolts of like, energy coming through on the cover when you've rethought things a little bit. Tyler? Of course, I've got to go back to cover one as well because it's just it's the launch. It's where it all started. So I think having this pilot from the Japan Self-Defense Forces was just it was, it was very striking. And, and a, you know, part of it was a marker for what we wanted to deliver with this brand. We had to you know, we came out of you know lots of different people coming from lots of different places. You know, Andrew having come from the Independent. I mean, Rich, you know, we'd be work for, working for a while, of course, at Wallpaper. Uh, so what were we going to do? And and we had to set out and, and really establish the brand if it wasn't going to be in one cover we had to do it within the first four or five and so there was something very sober a lot of people said they were very it was very academic and and that was you know, it was very deliberate uh, we wanted to to create some sense of, of departure um but then i have to go back to the to the sense of um i guess of just a fun as well and and i rich you might know the cover where you might know the issue date around it but i you know i love for example when it was a German cover where we had, you know, a Playmobil character in truck, like just poking his head in <laughs> off the side, uh, etc. And and there's there's just, yeah. you know, I think this the sense of of playfulness. And these last two years, we've been through quite a serious patch. And I would like to think as as the the sun comes out properly again, I think we have been delivering optimistic covers. That is, it's you know, optimism. We haven't really talked about it, but it's certainly it's a core editorial value in many ways that I think you'll probably see there'll be a bit more room for, I think, some fun and frivolity, a little bit more wit as well, because I think that's when we've also been, I think, been at our best. And as Rich says, you know, you have to be able to just stop people in their tracks at a train station, at an airport. Of course, lots of people just get the magazine as a subscriber, but there needs to be that that element of curiosity. And, and always we talk about that, that odd little twinkle in the eye of, of, of the character on the cover. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You're listening to The Curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And on a series of special pieces this week celebrating our 15 years, here is Monaco's raw bound on how music have changed during this period. As the first issues of Monocle went to press 15 years ago, the music industry was reshaping itself quicker than Beyoncé's outfit changes at the 2016 Super Bowl. Madonna quit Warner Music to sign with concert promoter Live Nation and Radiohead bypassed EMI to self-release a pay-what-you-like album online. CDs went from accounting for 90% of sales in 1999 to just 4% last year. Live music was to become the musical money spinner. 
Vienna, and mega-touring became the norm. Festivals grew like mushrooms, magic or otherwise, in a summer glade. While execs fretted about formats, pop did what pop does and shot like lava down the hillside. Hip-hop grew back its political balls. Beyonce's formation was a rousing chorus to racial injustice, crowned by that Super Bowl show where her backing dancers dressed as Black Panthers before forming Malcolm's X. Meaning was back, and the world was proud to shed real tears for David Bowie and for Prince. Pure pop reached its apogee in South Korea. BTS broke hearts and records, Blackpink became an international brand, and Psy got the world to dance Gangnam style. Just ask Barack Obama. You felt that even Adele and J Balvin, despite really ruling the world, were missing a trick by shunning choreography. I'm thinking out loud, maybe... Indie pop was embodied by Ed Sheeran, who might have gone to prep school in Suffolk, but sang for his own supper in railway stations and, vitally, on YouTube. He was also genre agnostic, collaborating with hip-hop artists like Example and Wiley. Millions followed who liked songs but were perplexed by genres. Lil Nas X released Old Town Road in 2018, a country rap earworm with a video that featured Billy Ray Cyrus in a pink suit on guest vocals and the young, black, gay Nas as a rapping cowboy. It spent a record 19 weeks at the top of the Billboard Hot 100. Execs stopped making notes and just switched on the radio again, happy for someone else to do the choosing. And from the Foreign Desk Explainer this week, as Russia sends troops to support separatists in the Ukrainian cities of Donetsk and Luhansk, Andrew Muller warns against drawing parallels with the Russo-Georgian War of 2008. Historical analogies are rarely perfect. Afghanistan, for example, was not quite Vietnam, Iraq was not quite Suez, and despite its frequent invocation, not least this week, nothing since Neville Chamberlain at Munich has really been Neville Chamberlain at Munich. And the Prime Minister comes home, home to an empire filled with joy and relief, home to a welcome that he will never forget. The past is nevertheless often a useful-ish guide to the present, not least because the past is often used to justify the present, as it was this week in the lengthy list of paranoid grievances with which President Vladimir Putin of Russia justified his order for Russia's military to invade even more of Ukraine than Russia had previously. The essence of the aggressive nationalistic character of the regime that seized power in Kiev hasn't changed. I consider it necessary to immediately recognize the independence and sovereignty of the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics. 
However, perhaps the best explanation for and or parallel with Russia's current behaviour is not to be found in or indeed between the lines of Putin's deeply weird ramble to the nation on Monday night, but in the events of 14 years ago in Georgia. It was a war that lasted only six days, but which had a profound effect on a country and a region on the edge of Europe. Georgia in 2008 and Ukraine in 2022 do have some things unarguably in common. Both were once Soviet socialist republics. Both had been liberated to become sovereign states by the collapse of the USSR. Both looked west, nurturing aspirations to membership of the EU and NATO. Both had young and unorthodox leaders, though it might reasonably be argued that the key difference between Georgia's then-president Mikhail Saakashvili and Ukraine's current president Volodymyr Zelensky is that Zelensky is at least a professional comedian. Both presented an intolerable challenge to a Russia unable and unwilling to accept that the world had changed. Both had, as all countries do, fractures into which wedges could be driven. As Russian troops have been present in Ukraine since 2014, so Russian troops had held Georgian territory long before 2008. Back in the early 1990s, separatists in the Georgian seaside territory of Abkhazia fought a ghastly war of independence against Georgia's military. Something similar occurred at around the same time in South Ossetia, an inland province of Georgia also bordering Russia. The upshot of these conflicts was that Abkhazia and South Ossetia gained and retain a de facto independence. Russia, having more or less obviously supported both Abkhazia and South Ossetia during their wars, sent soldiers across the border to police the peace. This correspondent met some in 1998, manning a checkpoint on the Abkhaz-Georgia border, high on a lonely dusty road in the glorious mountains of Svaneti. They were nice enough kids, if bored and undersupplied, who let us pass for a share of our picnic. One asked me if I'd like to buy his boots. I visited Abkhazia proper in 2005 and met the president, vice president and foreign minister. They possibly just didn't have much else to do. Russian troops were widely visible in Abkhazia's capital, Sukhum, especially near the beach. In 2008, Russia got properly into it with Georgia. While there is a case that the conduct of President Mikhail Saakashvili of Georgia in the build-up was not a masterclass in diplomatic prudence, the Russo-Georgia War of 2008 would not have happened had Russia, for which read Vladimir Putin, then pretending to be Prime Minister in between presidencies, not wanted it to happen. Why they were attacking pipelines if they just wanted to solve territorial issues or to enforce, as they are saying, peace in concrete area. Here is where it might all start sounding broadly familiar. Grim Russian mutterings about aggression against ethnic Russians or Russian speakers, or just people who Russia decided would do for its purposes. Russian troops sent across the border fighting in concert with Russian-supplied, if not Russian-created, separatist forces under the banner of keeping the peace. There was even a Russian feint towards Georgia's capital, Tbilisi, briefly raising the fear of outright conquest. 
Russia formally recognised Abkhazia and South Ossetia as sovereign states and persuaded and or bribed a handful of other countries to follow suit. Nicaragua, Syria, Venezuela, Nauru. Fans of recherche diplomatic shenanigans greatly enjoyed Tuvalu's recognition of both in 2011 and the withdrawal of same in 2014 and the long years of anguished ambiguity regarding Vanuatu's views on the matter. After just five days of fighting and a few dozen deaths in action, Russia had what Russia saw as an enormous prize at a bargain price. A permanent military presence on Georgian territory and two sticks it could poke Georgia with whenever Russia felt like it. In no imaginable circumstances, and whatever the official line, would NATO or the EU buy that kind of trouble. So this was the playbook that Putin appeared to be consulting when Russia first invaded Ukraine in 2014. For Abkhazia and South Ossetia, read Crimea and Donbass, give or take one formal annexation. It was cynical, illegal and vindictive, but it made a certain brute strategic sense. As of this week, the comparison falters somewhat. We are seeing a significant further push of Putin's luck into a much bigger and better armed country than Georgia, and one which shares land borders with four EU and NATO countries, as opposed to Georgia's with no EU countries and one dubiously reliable NATO member, Turkey. We are also hearing, comparing then and now, a shift in Russia's rhetoric, from the belligerent but just about maybe vaguely plausible if that's how you choose to see the world, to the palpably unhinged. At which point historical analogies begin to become profoundly discouraging. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. You're listening to The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And on Tall Stories this week, the spin-off show of The Urbanist, Fiona Wilson visits a rare surviving example of Japanese metabolism, whose stacked modular capsules are soon to be disassembled. It looks a little dilapidated today, but Nakagin Capsule Tower is one of the most important modern buildings in Japan. Sitting on the fringes of glitzy Ginza, it nudges up against an expressway, a startling stack of sci-fi capsules with porthole windows. It was designed by Kisho Kurakawa and opened in 1972, a shining symbol of metabolism, a Japanese architecture movement that sought to answer questions about how Japan's booming post-war cities should accommodate their burgeoning populations. Kurakawa's solution was a tower made of prefabricated capsules, each one a self-contained apartment that could be bolted on or taken away as needed. Japan is a different country today, and metabolism a distant memory. But the tower still stands, as neglected by its owners as it is loved by its admirers. Its presence taken for granted, Nakagin is as much a part of Tokyo's cityscape as Tokyo Tower or the giant wooden gate of Meiji Shrine. Go to Legoland and there it is, rendered in chunky plastic bricks. And yet this special building is to be demolished this year. Some fans tried to stop the inevitable by buying up empty capsules, but the owners were determined and the building was sold. The tower had been allowed to sink into a state of disrepair over recent years, even though a number of its 140 capsules were still occupied. Today, as the hoardings go up and a forlorn Save Nakagin banner hangs in a window, there's plenty of nostalgia, but Nakagin will soon be gone. 
And here's the problem. What is Tokyo doing to preserve its modern architectural legacy? Buildings from the 1950s, 60s and 70s are routinely deemed too unremarkable to deserve protection, with the result that Tokyo is losing an important part of its post-war legacy. With such illustrious names as Yoshio Taniguchi, Kenzo Tange and Kunio Maikawa, this was a special generation of architects who wholeheartedly embraced the new while playing with references to a much older Japan. Look at Tokyo's National Theatre, a beautiful slice of modernism facing the Imperial Palace. Designed by Hiroyuki Iwamoto and built in 1966, its majestic, some might say austere facade, was inspired by the same horizontal log-style architecture that was used in the 1,200-year-old Shosoin treasure house at Todaiji Temple in Nara. At night, it is elegantly lit with a long line of lanterns. Even the front garden is of interest, planted with 10 types of cherry trees. Seeing kabuki or bunraku puppetry there is a special experience. The Japan Arts Council, supposed guardians of Japanese culture, has announced that the theatre is to be replaced with a new high-rise, with a theatre below, hotel on top, and new restaurant facilities. The much-loved old National Stadium, built in 1958 with room for nearly 50,000, was replaced with a lavish new stadium to meet the larger capacity required to host the Olympics, which was somewhat ironic as it turned out, since the Tokyo 2020 Games ended up being spectator-free, and the future of the stadium is uncertain, given the hefty costs of maintaining such a huge facility. The unusually vocal campaign to renovate rather than demolish the old stadium came to nothing. The list of other notable modern buildings that will be removed continues. Marinucci's first high-rise, the Tokyo Marie Nichido Insurance Building, will soon come down. Built in 1974 and designed by Kunio Mayakawa, one of Japan's great modern architects, it was controversially tall in its day the first building of any height to overlook the Imperial Palace across the moat. Today, the reddish brick facade is dwarfed by tall glass towers. It will be demolished next year to be replaced by a new tower by 2028. Two other buildings, the Yurakacho building from 1966 and the Shin Yurakacho from 1969, both beneficiaries of a change in the law in 1963 that allowed sizable tower blocks to be built for the first time, are coming down part of a great sweep of redevelopment that has transformed the area around Tokyo Station. What is lost is not simply the architecture, it's the ecosystem of Kisaten coffee shops, the old-school barbers, the sense of a Tokyo that will soon disappear from view. The interval dinner at the National Theatre is currently served by jacketed waiters in 20 minutes flat in a delightfully dated dining room. That experience will be lost along with the building. The Palace, the capital Tokyo and the Okura, all landmark Tokyo hotels of the 60s, have been replaced with new buildings, more suited to the demands of the modern traveller. To the Okura's credit, the team did everything possible to recreate the famous old lobby with painstaking craftsmanship. That project is unique, and it could be argued that the rebuild revived some techniques that might have disappeared. The era has few supporters. Even the great Nakagin, which any city should be proud to have, is going with little fanfare. Most shrug with acceptance and say that at least a capsule or two will be saved to be shown in museums, which surely misses the point entirely. Tokyo has a poor history of preservation. Of course, external events have played their part too, but might we make a plea for the city to take better care of its post-war buildings?
finally on the show, it's Modernism Week. Monaco's Chris Lord heads to Palm Springs, California, for the city's revered Modernism Week. The first house on the right is the Burgess House, affectionately known Bougainvillea, for the abundance of Bougainvillea's planted on the property. I'm on an open-top bus in the deserts of Southern California. We're touring the quiet, peaceful streets of Palm Springs, a city best known for two things. Year-round sunshine, which attracts snowbirds from across North America, and an extraordinary collection of housing stock, mostly built around the middle of the 20th century. Every February, devotees of mid-century architecture descend on this city for Modernism Week, 11 days of talks, tours, and through-the-keyhole visits to the city's well-preserved homes, to see firsthand some of the best work done by period architects like John Lautner, Richard Neutra, and Albert Frey. Who's not from Palm Springs? Who's not from California? Let's see. Who's not from the United States? Where are you from? England. England. Okay, well, that's kind of the United States. <laughs> On the seat in front of me is Shirley Dawn Seton and Mary Trezino, who've come all the way from Michigan for Modernism Week. Shirley first. I grew up in a mid-century modern home, so my father was an architect. We lived in homes just like this, only for the middle class, not for the rich. I'm always drawn, no matter where I am, if I see something that's mid-century, I just have to stare at it. I have to almost have it. It's like I'm not living long enough to have everything I want in the mid-century genre. And Mary, you've lived in several mid-century houses, is that right? Yes, I have. There's a quite a lovely collection of mid-century modern architecture in, of all places, Midland, Michigan. And there's an architect there named Alden Dow. He designed some lovely homes there, and we've lived in three of them. It was very interesting to live in flat-roofed houses in a city that gets sometimes up to 20 inches of snow, and you have to evaluate whether you're going to go and actually shovel it off the top of your home. Palm Springs was built to be a bolt hole for Los Angeles and Hollywood elites. But after World War II, America's growing middle classes wanted second homes, and developers came to Palm Springs to build in their thousands. But they hired really good architects for the job. They used clean roof lines, mountain-facing glass windows, and indoor-outdoor flow that would shape the mid-century vernacular. It was, simply, high design for the average Joe. And in America's latest scramble for second homes during the pandemic, Palm Springs is once again having a moment. This neighborhood has become swanky. Many people are buying properties and renovating them and then flipping them. My name is Robert Kalen, and I'm a real estate agent here in the desert. So, Robert, we're looking at a, an amazing collaborative piece of mid-century architecture here, the Palm Springs City Hall. It's actually one of my favorite buildings here in City Hall because of the collaboration of all these architects. John Porter, Clark, Albert Frey, Robson Chambers, and East Stuart Williams were the primary four, and they used as many mid-century elements as they possibly could. These long, linear staircases that greet you and take you up to the building is just the most gentle, beautiful way to flow into an, a piece of architecture. They used stone and glass and all of these incredible aluminum briselet screens to really pop and make this a cool building. 
Now, as we look at this City Hall building, one thing that strikes you there is it says at the front, the people are the city. You're in real estate here mm-hmm. in Palm Springs. You've been here for 18 years, but you volunteer at Modernism Week. Why? I just love the architecture and everything about modernism. In the desert, the architecture is so popular because it really allows you to take inside and outside and meld them together. The heart of Modernism Week is being able to see inside some of the incredible houses here in Palm Springs. You slip on shoe covers and imagine what it's like to live in one of these day to day. I met the 1968 William Crizzle-designed Maison Bleu Moderne, which has had a very recent update by a contemporary designer. Yet against the backdrop of the boom for mid-century real estate, some visits can feel, well, a bit like wandering around a showroom or an open house, something for purchase. Most renovations are beautiful, no doubt, but for Palm Springs purists, holding on to the authenticity of these homes is key. Peter Maruzzi is a historian of mid-century design and was founding president of the Palm Springs Modern Committee. We're in the south end of Palm Springs in a house that was built in 1956, which we bought in 1998. The house faces primarily north, so you don't have to worry about you know, the sun coming directly in. The south-facing part of the house has deep overhangs. The west face, which is towards the mountains, has a lot of glass and a beautiful view. And then the east, because the sun comes up that way, you know, we don't have that many windows that, and that's fairly typical. In the 90s, mid-century modernism was not acknowledged. And a number of us came from Los Angeles, and I was involved in preservation there in the um, mid-90s through the LA Conservancy, which is a preservation group. And we realized there was this whole inventory of existing but neglected modern homes. Prices are really low because people hadn't realized or cared that all this stuff was here. So we came out and we bought and immediately got involved in preservation because at that time things were starting to be torn down. So my organization, we formed to fight to preserve the mid-century design that existed here. That was tough because the city council was not interested whatsoever. The local population didn't really care either because they didn't see the value in modernism. So when you see that, when you see that journey from the 90s where, in a way, they didn't really know what was on their doorstep here, to now, Modernism Week, all these people bussing in every year from all over the United States to see these houses, how do you reflect on it? There is a kind of irony to it all, isn't there? Yeah, of course. I mean, the thing is, the, the pendulum always swings too far the other way. We're trying to promote the beauty of our history, and then we get to a certain point where we're, we're kind of succeeding. We're starting to elect officials who get it, but then it just keeps on going and the media goes crazy and starts publicizing it way beyond what we anticipated. So as the years have gone by, it's gotten really expensive and hard for people like we were in the 90s who could, you know, actually afford a second home because they were so cheap. Right, so Peter, what are we looking at here? It sort of looks like a fireplace. It's in a big yellow chimney. This is a built-in barbecue, which was a short-lived fad out here in the desert. They would put the barbecue in the house next to the dining room table, and you could barbecue, and the smoke would go up the chimney, and then you would just take it three feet from the grill and plop it on the table. 
Do you ever use it, Peter? Can you use no, it? We can't use it because somebody a while ago cut off the burner. But you've kept it here because obviously you've tried to keep this as, as authentic as you possibly can. Talk me through the kitchen here because this looks amazing. You walk in and there's there's this amazing looking oven here with it says Western Holly on it. Tell me a bit about this. Whenever you would buy a, a home, whether it was a tractor or whatever, they would often put in these high-end uh, ovens and cooktops. And Western Holly is an LA-based company that's out of business now that had as its unique feature a porthole window. We have a tour coming here on Sunday and people, the first thing they're going to say is, wow, look at that oven. Does that work? Yeah, it works. I mean, we have to have an oven in the house. So yeah, we don't have one in the backyard. This, it, it works. And you're not going to use your indoor barbecue, are you? We're not going to use the indoor barbecue. <laughs> so this is how the <laughs> working oven. For some here, authenticity is at a premium. Living mid-century is not just about owning the home, but being able to kit it out sensitively too. The opening party of the Palm Springs Modernism Show and Sale, the original homeware trade show that Modernism Week grew out of, is full of people dressed up to the nines who are snapping up armchairs and armoires for their second homes in Palm Springs. Jason Plotter runs Den Los Angeles in East Hollywood. We specialize in 20th century furniture from, I'd say, the 30s up until the 70s. Um, and we source and restore some of the highest end uh, vintage furniture, modern mainly. And Jason, you've been to Modernism Week before, you've presented your collection here. What kind of reception have you had from year to year? Uh, we've done really well. I mean, uh, because a lot of the houses and a lot of architecture is from the 50s and 60s, our inventory reflects that, so people really take kindly to it. They're realizing the value behind vintage items and that it's only going to continue to take gain value opposed to lose value. So here at Object Project, where have you come from to come to uh, Modernism? My name is Giovanni Mercado. I'm from Northern California, Sacramento-based. The name says it all, Object Project. Uh, I try to find things that have heart, that are designed by people who had good intentions to make these things. Yeah. So we're here at the yeah. main show and sale for Modernism Week. How lucrative is it for a design firm like yours to come here to, to Palm Springs? This, this is my first time selling here. People love design. Palm Springs is a perfect catalyst and they're willing to spend the money on great design. They love to live nice. You know, our goal is to make money uh, and have fun. Simple as that. For Monocle in Palm Springs, I'm Chris Lord. Well, that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening.